you learn pretty quickly in any institution that you're a cog in the machine. So you're talking about four years of college and then eight or nine years of working in education after that. And my opinion has changed. I think that we need to totally rethink the way that education is done in this country in every village and burg and district everywhere. Hey, everybody, I'm Sam Coates, and this is the Driven By Podcast. Life's a lot more fun when you're all in and passionate about what you're building. Here, you'll hear me with entrepreneurs, operators, executives, and public servants from all over the country. They'll discuss their commitment to their craft, defining moments, what's made them successful, where things are headed in their space, plus so much more. This podcast is produced by the team at DrivenbySamCoats.com. And for more information and episodes, go to DrivenbySamCoats.com backslash podcast. Before we get to today's episode, here's a quick word from our sponsor for today's podcast. AB Jets is a great story. Started very small with an entrepreneur and a dream. And it's now one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. So bypass the hassle and fly private. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. Hey, everybody. First things first, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and your families. Hope you have an awesome next few weeks. My guest this week is Ryan Pryor. Ryan is an educator with Crosstown High School based out of Memphis, Tennessee. The public school system in the United States is broken. And to better understand this, here's an episode with an educator who's not scared to do it differently. Crosstown High School was started out of the XQ Institute, and they work directly with the Emerson Collective, which Lauren Powell Jobs has established. Our education problems are not local. They are national. They affect all of us, and this school is willing to think outside the box. Please enjoy this week's episode with Ryan Pryor. Ryan, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me, Sam. Really appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure and an honor to come onto your podcast, and uh, just happy that you're interested enough in us to uh, to have me on. So, uh, thank you again. Going back ten years ago, what do you think was most concerning to you about the state of elementary and high school education in the United States? So, ten years ago, I was beginning my journey in college with that experience, I'm learning about you know the world of public education. So that was something, it was something that at the time was new to me. My mother was a, a, an elementary school vice principal. My father was an independent school director of technology. And I actually was able and fortunate enough to go to an independent school for seven years. So I had not been in the public school world since my elementary school days. And when I decided to go into education, I hadn't really understood or didn't understand at the time what was going on. And so for four years, I sort of spent that time learning and obviously doing student teaching and engaging with the system. And from the minute you're involved in the system of education in the country, in any part of this country, and it's obviously very different depending on where you are, you can tell that things are not the way that they should be. 
And that's on an anecdotal basis, like a day-to-day, you can feel that there is tension, that there's burnout, that there is amongst teachers, this just complete sort of acceptance of the idea that things are going wrong and an absolute inability to do anything about it because of the way that the system is set up. So that's anecdotal. Like when you're in the schools, that's, that's the first thing that hit me. And then learning about it from the other side at the academic level and looking at the way that we assess and look at student achievement is totally warped. And then additionally, the way that we are funding our schools is creating inequality across the board. And I could go on, but I started asking these questions when I first got to college. It was, it was obvious to me that something was up and something that I had by privilege been able to ignore because my, I went to a very well-funded independent school. Fast forward 10 years, and I know we'll cover more about your background and experiences. Have your opinions or has your perspective changed? So, you know, I was, an op- I was a lot more optimistic and a lot more like a, uh, a young 20s, you know, early 20s, I can fix this, get me in the system, and I will show them the error of their ways, the things that I was seeing. And obviously was a part of this, you know, I, I was saying, okay, I've learned, I'm learning about this. I now know enough to go out and make a difference from within. And you learn pretty quickly in any institution that you're, you're a cog in the machine. So you're talking about four years of college and then eight or nine years of working in education after that. And my opinion has changed. I, I think that we need to totally rethink the way that education is done in this country in every village and burg and and district everywhere. And I think that the only way that we're going to do that is by having organizations and schools work from the outside, create different opportunities and show people within the system as it exists that change is possible and that there are different ways and better ways of doing what we do, which is the business of helping to engender growth and learning within teenagers. There is a better way to do it. And it's not necessarily a scary process. It is an exciting process. And so I would say that if we're talking about that original question, what has my mindset changed? I sort of had a lot more optimism about changing the system from within 10 years ago. And that's maybe optimism has faded. And now I have moved to much more of a let's do, do things differently. Let's find opportunities to innovate and let's spread that outside of that system. You're not a boring guy, but <laughs> in a non-boring way, could you explain the foundation, the system, how it got to be the way it is Yeah, and why it's ineffective? So let's start off with the, there's, there's multiple reasons for that, but let's go all the way back to 1906. And I'm a, I was a history teacher by trade before I became, became before I got to work in development and alumni work, and I still teach personal finance. So I'm a teacher at heart. And so I'm gonna, we're going to start with the history of the thing, which goes back to 1906 uh, and a little thing called the Carnegie Unit, okay? So the Carnegie Unit was basically a, an idea created by Andrew Carnegie uh, after he donated something like $10 million at the time, $304 million in, in inflation-adjusted funds, to create a retirement fund and pension for teachers at colleges and universities, okay? And, and then along with that creation of that fund, Carnegie sort of 
got together with groups of academics and said that in order for this money to be distributed, we we think there needs to be a organized unit of structure for high schools and colleges and technical schools. So if you want this money, this big endowment that he created, you're going to have to go along with our unit that we created. This Carnegie unit is based off of a segmented time structure, eight hours, okay? And basically the idea was that students needed to sit for eight hours at 45 minutes to an hour long increments in rooms, in classrooms, looking up at a board with a teacher instructing them and them taking notes. And then every 45 minutes or an hour, a bell would ring and they would get up and they would move. What was the data or why did they decide that? So the data uh, at the time was based off of the, the, the fact that there was no one t- structure for education in any place in the United States. Basically, Carnegie and other industrialists were having disproportionate results in the people they were hiring to work in their factories. And this is sort of a little interesting historical you know, phenomenon. What you're talking about in 1906 is the dawn or the, the, the high point of the Industrial Revolution in the United States, Right. Yeah. So you, you have these industrialists hiring people and they're getting mixed results and they're basically getting together and going, we've got to figure out a way to normalize, norm a system across the board so that students, when they come out of at least high school, but also college, they're prepared to work in our factories, you know, you know become businessmen and women, things of that nature. So I don't know if there's exact data. I don't know if they had data at the time to justify this, but they had a rationale based off of the economic environment of the day, if that makes sense. 100%. AB Jets is a great story. Started very small with an entrepreneur and a dream. And it's now one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. So bypass the hassle and fly private. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. So from the beginning, there was very little science or research or data that led to the system and then because of the amount of funds that were put in and because of compounding interest and because of the structure set up, you had to play by the rules, which has yeah. morphed into teachers unions today and a bunch of other things. What I'll say to that and what I'll just say to that and going back to that beginning, while there was no data to support it, there was a rationale. They did. They were trying. If you notice that that unit that I described eight hours sitting and looking up and going from bell to bell, what does that sound like? That sounds like factory work. It sounds like what my grandfather and maybe your grandfather did when they got out of high school. I don't know if that's the case for you, Sam. Uh, He he played baseball. Oh, good for him. Okay. But but what you're saying, you force people into this non-creative manufacturing manual labor to support the big industry of that day of the philanthropists that are given the money to do it in the first place. Exactly. And by the way, that very endowment that he created with $10 million is now the largest, one of the largest, if not the largest teacher-funded pension programs in the country, which is a, a, a program called TIA-CREF. I mean, billions of dollars in retirement funds for teachers. My dad, my mom both have retirement plans through TIA. And so that's basically how we educated kids in a quick snippet. That system basically took over. And for the next hundred years, that Carnegie unit was how we, de- how we 
created every school in existence. And now, a hundred and what, 20, 100, almost 120 years later, the system remains, but the outcomes that we need for our high schoolers are totally different. Very few high schoolers are getting out of school and going into factory work. And not to say that, not to downplay that, because look, my grandfather worked in a factory for 40 years. It's an honorable profession. Lots of great things happen when we increase manufacturing. But the vast majority of jobs that our young people are going into are creative thinking jobs. They're, they're problem-solving jobs. Uh, they are entrepreneurship, to name three of a billion different jobs that didn't even exist in 1906. You know what I'm saying? And the best example for, for the way, the, how far we've gotten off of this path, how, how, or at least how far we've taken this past, it, past its usefulness is that the Carnegie Foundation itself, which is the, or it's called the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, is now advocating for the abolishment of the Carnegie unit. The very, the foundation that is, you know, came from the creator of this is saying, this is not useful anymore. This is not helping us. How long has that been going on? Uh, the, uh, I think that last, at least the last decade, last 10 years or so. Why has it not been abolished? So old habits die hard, right? When you have something like, a million to two million educators and a system around the country, people like to stick to the way things have been done, right? Because if it ain't broke, don't fix it, except it is broke. And if you ask 100 different educators what the problem is, they'll give you 100 different answers. But one of the biggest problems that we face that can be actually controlled by the school, because schools can't control where their funding comes from, schools can't control legislatures and the changing dynamics of politics within state houses, Schools can change how they do th their work. Schools can change the methods they use to, to educate students. So I think one of the things you're finding is that these entrenched ideologies that have always existed, these, like no one ever questions the idea that students should come in and sit down for 45 minutes at a time for eight hours a day, and yet we should be. What should it be? So what should it be? I mean, it really, it depends on your population, but what it is at Crosstown you know, for us, what we've tried to do for the last six years is to say, let's take that model of like, like that, that model of eight hours a day, 45 minutes at a time. Let's totally blow that up and let's create space for students to create and innovate and practice like real world skills. Let's not have a traditional, like, a, like you know, an, eight, an eight to three schedule, uh, you know, divided up into, into little things. Let's mix that up. So, you know, the mixed block schedule is nothing new, but what you do with that time, it can be new. So what should it be? Well, first of all, students should be, shouldn't be sitting in rows of desks in classrooms for hours at a time going from class to class to class, first of all. And they shouldn't be only writing and regurgitating information. Why not? Because that skill has largely been made obsolete by the creation of word processors and the internet and now AI and chat GPT. The world is changing, has been changing for the last four decades. And so famously, Albert Einstein said, I do not keep in my brain that which is readily available in books. And right now we're asking students to engage in practices that are not beneficial to them when they leave. And they're telling us that you ask any recent graduates, you know, you know, what was your high school experience like? They're like, well, I don't use it anything like anything I learned in high school in my job. And so what we're trying to get at here is instead of 
classrooms being a solitary, you know, individualized space where you're sitting in sitting down and writing and regurgitating and memorizing and and ad infinitum, students are creating. They're solving real world problems. They're going out into the community all the time, working with professionals and working with community organizers and working with advocates and saying, let's let's find a way to make learning realistic and something that they can legitimately take with them as soon as they graduate, no matter what job they do. How do you think about the teachers unions, the state and federal dollars being a charter school, et cetera, but how do you think about how schools are evaluated and the way schools are evaluated, how people are held accountable, what people feel like that they have to teach or push through so that they are in good standing. And then what you're able to do differently when you're not a part of that public school system. So what I'll say is, first of all, is that we are a part of the public school system. So we are a public charter. The work that we do is all within the confines of the state of Tennessee's legal requirements for graduates of every public school. We teach the classes that the state says we have to teach. We use the standards that the state says we have to use. And we additionally use, uh, like we have the same testing models, like, like we test the same as any other public school that receives public funds. So I want to make sure that's set. I think the point I'm trying to make is that it, that you can do so much even within that system, and but if we go back and talk about that question that you're that you're asking about the metrics for evaluating schools and teachers, uh, you're exactly. I don't know if you're getting to this, but there are huge problems with that. First of all, we're teaching. So I teach standards in my class. Teachers teach standards. There are tested subjects and non-tested subjects. In the testing subjects, teachers and schools are held accountable for how their students do on those. Now, in the COVID and post-COVID world, that's been a little bit different, right? But generally, a school is graded based on how well their students do on a set of standardized tests in things like math, English, U.S. history, okay? Schools that do well tend to receive more accolades, more access to funding, more, uh, more the rich get richer in that regard, right? The schools that are already doing well in that tend to do better and and get more opportunity. The schools that don't do well in those tend to have revolving doors of administrators and have scrutiny constantly of what they're doing and also tend to be schools that have less funding than the ones that do well. Like that's the like that's the huge correlation that you can make here. I'm not going to say that you know correlation does not equal causation, but the biggest correlation you can make between test scores and the way that a school is viewed is almost entirely based on the socioeconomic status of the students and the families who make up that community. And that's not blaming them. That's saying that the way that we currently fund our schools is like has problems. Because schools are largely funded by property taxes. So if the property taxes in one area are higher than the other, guess what? That school is going to get more money. So Taking that into account, let's go back to that system that the state has set up. Say, here's these standards that everyone has to learn, right? And we're looking at you as a school to make sure that you are having those students um, do well on those tests. Okay, that's a reasonable thought, except for if you've got one school whose kids are well-fed and have access to tutors and have access to, and who don't have to go work jobs at the end of every school day, and who are not taking care of other people, those students are going to do better on that test by the sheer fact of the matter that they have more time to, to, to give thought to it. 
The school over here that has less funding because the property taxes are lower, because their resources are less, because their teachers are underpaid and their teachers are burnt out, that school's going to do worse. And because of the way the system is set up to grade those schools, one will continue to get better or stay the same, and one will continue to get worse. And then all of a sudden, you have this huge um, inequality between outcomes of different public schools. So I think if you want to get down to brass tacks, the problem is, is that we have one standard across the board for all schools, but not all schools are created equal. So if you were able to blow it up and start over, how would you quantify or what metrics would you use across the board, regardless of what school, where they were socioeconomically, to allocate funds from a state and federal standpoint in a way that you felt like was fair? You know, I don't know if I have the extra, like, that is not my area of expertise, Sam. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not a policy guy. Anything I would say would be based off of my personal opinion and not something that I'm necessarily like, it, it wouldn't be vetted by my knowledge. What I can tell you is, is that we need to change the way that we fund schools at very least. We need to change the way that we fund schools. We need to, like, there needs to be a huge discussion across the board about how each school gets its money. And also, we need to have a huge discussion across the board of why is it that property taxes are the things that are funding schools? And the people who are in favor of it would say that property taxes fund schools because the people in that area should pay for the school that they exist in. But if all public schools are supposed to be held to the same standard, then we they all need to have the same budget. So that, I think, would, would fix some problems. I think additionally, there needs to be a, a change in the metrics by which we uh, assess schools. So even your quote unquote best schools, Sam, are not performing to standard on these like English and math tests that they're supposed to be doing well on, right? A good school is maybe getting over 50% or 60% of their kids proficient based on these state requirements in math and English, okay? Those are good schools. And without going too much into the weeds of the data, Basically, the way that we're assessing schools is saying that almost every school in the state of Tennessee, many schools, which are working their butts off to, to do well for their students, are failing by that metric. So we need a more holistic approach to assessing what a school looks like. You know, and I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I think it should involve qualitative data, not just quantitative data. It shouldn't be just about like how many students you graduate and how good your test scores are. It should be about like what is the outcome for your community? How many of your students are matriculating to college, but then also how many of your students are are continuing in college afterwards? Or on the other hand, how many of your students, you know, got gainful employment after they left you? Because college isn't the only answer and it's certainly not the metric we use. So I think to answer that question, Sam, is that it's a complicated question to solve, but it doesn't appear like there's any interest in doing it right now, even though the problems with our schools are only going to get worse. We are experiencing the largest teacher shortage in history, and it, it seems to there's no signs that it's going to get any better anytime soon. Is the reason it hasn't changed or these specific things haven't changed because lobbyists, influence, unions, things like that, and term limits, so nothing ever really gets done? I mean, isn't this the issue, Sam, that we're seeing across the board, across every every facet of our lives right now? I mean, not to extrapolate, but doesn't it feel that way to you? Doesn't it feel that way that we are experiencing a time a time period in the last 10 or 15 years where basically both sides are locked into each other and neither one wants to budge? Because if they give in, it'll it doesn't matter whether they agree with the issue or not, it'll look like they're losing. And so 
I couldn't speak to that in the in the South, particularly, Sam. Like our unions are not particularly strong. Like teachers' unions are not very strong in the South. I mean, you like I I'm not a part of a teachers' union. There are there. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying that the the South is not does not have a strong tradition of union labor, and that extends to the teaching profession. So I'm not sure how much let's say unions are affecting that in the state of Tennessee. I know that unions certainly are affecting decision-making and legislation in the Northeast and on the West Coast. How much of that is dedicated to keeping things the same? I don't know. And I actually think you would find if you if you talk to this to, to, to educators and professionals within those fields, you would find that most of them would advocate for, for changing things. They don't want to keep things the same. So the question of why is it, why are things staying the same? Why is education not advancing? Why is why is the system not keeping up with the times and I think the biggest thing you're going to find is that lots of schools are just treading water. Lots of districts are just trying to make it to the end of the year because either they're understaffed or they're underfunded or they are neglected in some way. Could you explain a little bit the reasons behind the teacher shortage? So the Economic Policy Institute did a study a few years ago, and the top three reasons that they found for teacher shortage, and and you might predict that the number one issue would be pay, but it wasn't. Okay, that was number two, but it was it wasn't number one. Number one was undue stress created by the job. So basically, the the rewards did not outweigh the risks of being a teacher for the people that they interviewed uh, in their study. What we're seeing right now is something like a shortage of 200,000 qualified individuals across the United States and growing. And I would say that the number one thing you're going to find is that a combination of low teacher pay, a combination of of standards that are unachievable, uh, like we were talking about those standards for what like what makes a school, you know, good or not being unachievable, and then going back to that first piece, the burnout piece, teachers are burning out at rapid rates because they're continuously being asked to do more and more without the resources necessary to do it, combined with the fact that, like I said they're not being given space to innovate. They're not being space, given space to do the things they know will work. They know could be life-changing for these kids because of a system that says, this is the way we do it. We got to score good on tests. And so do this this way, burn and churn. Combine that with student behavior and risk-averse principles and, and, and administrations. Uh, and you basically got a recipe for disaster. So burnout, pay, and a system that is stagnant, schools that are not addressing real issues, not necessarily because they don't want to, but because maybe they can't. I want to be clear here, Sam, anytime I talk about these issues, I am never putting the onus on teachers, and I'm never putting the onus on administrators, the people who are working day to day. My Half my family's educators. I know educators across the entire United States. They are doing their best. They are working their butts off. They are trying. They care. No one gets into this business for the pay. No one gets into this business to become a captain of industry. You get into education because you know it's going to make a difference. You know that it can be the turning point in a child's life. But if the system that in which you find yourself is unsustainable and your life is taking a toll, your, your sum total of your existence is taking a toll because of the things that are going on, that why that... I love this for what it is, starts to become insurmountable. You can't get back to it because it's no longer there. It's 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 replaced by this burnout. So yeah, there's a lot of reasons for the teacher shortage. And I could talk about that for days. I did my whole master's thesis on teacher burnout, but I, I would say it's a 
a large number of, of reasons. So let's talk about Crosstown. Yeah, love it. What year was that founded? Crosstown, the idea for Crosstown started in 2015, but the school has been around since the, but we, we opened our doors in August of 2018. When I was hired in March of 2018, the first employee was hired, I think, in 2017. And Crosstown is based out of Memphis, Tennessee, here where I live, you live, but it's in a you know well-known urban city in the South. And Crosstown was funded initially, large contribution by Steve Jobs' wife. Is that correct? So in, in, in a roundabout way, so Steve Jobs' widow, Lorene Powell Jobs, Lorene Powell Jobs, and, and she just goes by Lorene Powell now. She has a nonprofit consortium called the Emerson Collective, and they work on a myriad of issues around the world, uh, ranging from climate change to politics to education. And within that collective, that Emerson Collect- Collective is XQ. XQ is a nonprofit founded, I think, about eight or nine years ago, that whole purpose was to rethink education in the United States. And part of that was based off of their their work with the um, Carnegie Foundation, which so they sort of partnered together with them and work with them in a way to say the model that was created 100 years ago isn't serving our students anymore. We need to rethink the way that we are educating kids because across the board, no no metric, quantitative or qualitative, are we succeeding in what we're trying to do? And so what happened? How did it come together and why? And what was what was the landscape like in Memphis then? So the landscape in Memphis seven or eight years ago was, you know, as it exists today. Um, Well, not as it exists today, but but largely unchanged. Large disparities between different public schools, disparities in outcome. You know, you have a, a core group of independent schools. And basically, there wasn't consistent outcome across any of the anything in the city of Memphis. No school was producing consistent outcomes. It was largely based on the zip code that you went to school in. And of course, that has to do with, you know, Poverty, it has to do with other social factors, what we call Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Basically, any community that can't meet, isn't able to like meet the basic needs of their, their children, those children are going to like see different results. But as it stood, essentially, Memphis and Shelby County was basically, you know, there were some schools that were doing well. There were some schools that were not doing well. There were private schools that we don't largely have any data off of, but they certainly were getting kids into college. But there was nowhere in Memphis that was attempting to like think differently about education, and even the charter schools, which you know have done have, have you know have have been around for a while. The charter system in Memphis has been around for a while. Those charter schools were largely still using the old model, the the sort of let's memorize and regurgitate, let's take tests, let's prepare these kids for college admittance exams like the ACT and the SAT. Let's use quantitative data and in some cases, extreme discipline to try to bridge gaps created by economic and social inequalities, right? And a woman uh, named Ginger Spickler, who is uh, our Director of Growth and Sustainability, um, was driving down I-55. She had actually been a part of the Memphis School Guide, which was an online directory and like information center for Memphis public schools. She was driving down I-55 from Memphis to New Orleans, and she saw a sign that said, do you want to rethink high school? And this was a, a, a billboard put up by XQ America in an attempt to find people who wanted to think differently about the way that high school was done. And Ginger is an innovator and a thinker and a, and a community member. She's lived in Memphis for 20 years. And she said, uh, yes, I do want to do that. And so 
she reaches out to XQ and XQ gets back to her and sends her this big box. And it's this box of basically materials for creating a new high school from the, from the ground up. And uh, Ginger spends a couple of years going around and meeting with thousands of members of our community in Memphis. She talks to teachers and she talks to parents and she talks to students and she talks to lawyers and doctors and everybody. And she gets people in people in rooms together and basically does a qualitative research study on what high school didn't do and what high school should do. Basically, the research question she asked was, if you could take away all the bad things about high school and bring in and only keep the good things and start new good things, what would that high school look like? And through that series of interviews and discussions and brainstorming sessions, she developed the idea for Crosstown High, um, along with some other community members who are still on our board. And they applied for a grant through XQ to see that model through. And XQ didn't initially award them the grant, but they came back a couple of months later and said, actually, you know what, this is really cool. And then on the other side within Memphis, they, you know, she got together with a guy named Todd Richardson, who is the director of the Crosstown Concourse. And it was at the time working on the development with the, you know, Crosstown Arts team. And they said, hey, we want a school in this big, giant, vertical urban village. And so they found a space in here in the building for us. And they, of course, worked on getting the charter and then, of course, worked on, you know, spreading the news. And 300 students initially applied to be a part of our, our first cohort of kids, of which we ended up with about 125 after the lottery was conducted. And then we opened our doors in August of 2018. That's sort of the story as it exists, like in a, in a nutshell. When you said 125, I guess y'all had budget for 125. So budget, you, you, schools are funded per head. So we, we got as much money as the students that came. So every student in the state of Tennessee, I think, is, is equals about, I don't know this the whole state. I just know that like, it's about $10,000 to $12,000 per student that a school will get. And you taught prior where? I was actually, I had taught, I went to undergrad at UT Chattanooga. I went and taught in rural Tennessee, rural middle Tennessee at two schools um, in, uh, for, two, for a year and a half. I then took a year off to go get my master's degree. And I was actually at Ole Miss when I heard about this school that was opening up. And basically, I sent an email with the most impassioned cover letter that I could to our, to the school secretary at the time. And uh, of course, this was before the school was even open. They'd only hired like five or six people. And uh, got invited to come in for an interview and showed up at this giant old factory that had been turned into, you know, this incredible space. I was awestruck from the beginning and I interviewed and got the job that night. So that was March 1st of 2018. What's been the hardest thing about being a part of a school that started from scratch? Man, uh, where do I start? Uh, uh, there's a billion things that are really hard about it. But Sam, I'll tell you, the number one thing is, is that you're like, I would say that we the building of a community from the ground up, you don't think about community as like, it's something that just sort of comes along with being alive, right? It's like we have our like things that we've done our whole lives, like your church community or your the schools that you go to or the family that you're a part of or your friend group, right? That kind of comes naturally over time. The idea of building a school and schools are extensions of communities as it exists. I mean, that is the that is what a school is in, in, its, in its most simplistic sense. It is an extension of the community that serves children. So when you're talking about starting a school from the ground up, you're basically bringing together disparate groups of people, different groups of individuals who all have different ideas, thoughts, backgrounds, some, many of whom have never seen each other. And in our case, we were bringing students from every zip code in the city of Memphis. So over 65 different middle schools were represented in that first 125 students. 
65 different middle schools and every zip code in the city of Memphis. So we were building a community that was as diverse as they came. Our teaching staff was as diverse as they came. I had moved the, I had moved to Memphis from Oxford, but it was from a little town in the middle of Tennessee. There were lifelong Memphians on our staff. There were people who had moved here from California and from New York to take jobs at Crosstown. So from the very beginning, we were all sort of learning each other's language, learning each, learning each other's systems and routines. We were learning each other's like thoughts and we were, you know, ba- building relationships with each other. I would say that's the hard, hardest part about starting a new school is that you're creating a community from the ground up and there are so many pitfalls and beautiful moments and incredibly harrowing and, and, and tiring moments. But that's, that's probably what I would say. Has the original vision changed much from when it started? So the original vision was to create a school with four basic pillars. The four pillars were a school that was diverse by design. So that's one of our, our, our principles is diversity by design. And in this case, it's not just a diversity of, it's, it's, it's a diversity across the board. We wanted a school that represented the city of Memphis, right? So we that's why we wanted students from every zip code. We didn't want students just from Midtown, which is where our school is. We wanted students from everywhere. So that part, like a diverse by design school, we wanted a school that was relationship based, a school where relationships took top priority, where teachers and students knew each other and where students felt comfortable talking with their teachers. Teachers felt comfortable like learning about their students and caring about them. Uh, And then also a school where students were learning and building relationships with each other. So, again, a community, not a place where kids felt like they were coming in and had to you know, show up in the morning and go, oh my God, why am I here? We wanted a place where kids felt like they belonged, which a lot of high schools, I'm not saying every high school is that way, but there's a lot of high schools out there that just do not feel like a place where community is happening. You know, we also wanted a space, the other other two things, we wanted a space that that used project-based learning to like create an environment where kids were engaging with real world problems and solving them and building things with their hands and with their minds. And then we wanted a place that was rather than standards based, we wanted it to be skills based or what we call competency based. And so our students were focusing on real world skills like soft skills and then also like mathematic skills and, you know, the traditional things alongside of stuff like public speaking. And that's been our mission for seven years. And I will tell you that we're certainly do we are still doing that. That is still our goal. That cont- every day we come in, that is our goal to create a space that is diverse, a create a space that is built on relationships, to create a space that is innovative in the way that we are delivering instruction through projects and a space that is teaching kids real world skills that even if they don't go to college, they can still join a workforce, join an organization and contribute immediately. Can you track and see results differently here with Crosstown compared to how it benchmarks against others? So, you know, I don't want to get too much into the data weeds because like the reality is in the post-COVID world, the data across the board is just largely like difficult to parse through. You know, the the amount of learning loss that we experienced during COVID, like the the active event and then the post-COVID era has been something that I think future scholars are going to talk about a lot. There's going to be a lot of books in the education community written about the learning loss that took place. Anecdotally, like across the United States, we're seeing people, teachers talking about there are huge gaps in knowledge. So overcoming those have been difficult, um, even for even for us. Like that has been something that we couldn't have predicted when we were opening up six years ago. What I will tell you is that, that we've had two graduating classes. 
228 students who have been admitted into over 100 different institutions, both public and private, across the United States. $20 million in scholarships at Ivy League schools in those as well. And ACT, SAT, and state standard testing scores that are at or above all at least peer charter schools and uh, many, most, many, if not most, public schools in the city of Memphis. And so what I'll tell you is this, Sam, the data is, is it changes year to year. We've certainly not been immune to like a decrease in test scores that I attribute largely to the COVID-19 pandemic, not to make excuses. But what I will tell you is, is that at the end result, the th- when you're starting a school, you're basically taking a group of kids and, and mentoring them for four years and then pushing them out into the world. And our kids, our first graduating class took a risk with us, right? They were jumping out into the deep end with us because we were starting a school from scratch. You know, we had a lot of resources, but we certainly still had our like pitfalls. And so the seeing them matriculate into college and being able to talk to alumni around the country who are, you know, at Vanderbilt and Howard and 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 Memphis and Rhodes and who are excelling and thriving and some who are already working. Anecdotally, uh, we have far outstripped. I think even what my expectation was. I'm very happy with where we are. Do you think any policymakers or any of the powers that be actually tried to understand the consequences that would have been in place from all the different rules and regulations that came into schools and businesses and things like that when COVID actually happened? Or do you think people just had really never didn't really think through it and were just reacting to the pandemic? Yeah, we're just, we were just free. I think everyone was just reacting. Nobody knew what, look, no one had ever dealt with this before, right? Like uh, we had a hundred years ago, right? In 1917, 1918, but this is not something that you can prepare for. This is not something, that was not something you could plan for. I, I stay away from casting judgment upon any of the decisions that were made during that time, especially with regards to education, because I think everyone was just reacting to what they felt was best. And there was no, in my opinion, right answer. There were a lot of, there were a lot of rock and hard place decisions, and so I don't think we'll ever have an. I don't think obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, right? There are things we know we could have done better, but in the moment, I think we were all just trying to survive. And I think any educator that was teaching during that time and any administrator during that time will tell you that they were just trying to do what they felt was best for their kids, their community. And by the way, that looked different depending on where you were, you know. So I think it would be hard to make a judgment call on that, given the incredibly nuanced nature of that period of time. When you sent that cover letter and you got hired that night after that interview, are things today what you were hoping for back then when you were excited to jump in? Absolutely. I adore working here and so does basically everybody else who works here as well. We just won the Memphis Business Journal's best mid-sized company in the city of Memphis to work for. And that's actually happened since you and I last spoke. So that happened back in September. I think when you have a school that is winning best place to work, I think you've got, you've, you've got to take notice of that because schools are not places where people want to work right now, right? We talked about the teacher shortages. We've talked about the massive burnout that's happening. The fact that, by the way, 50% of teachers don't stay in the profession past five years, okay? When you have a school like ours that has a super low attrition rate for teachers because they feel taken care of, but they also feel like they can innovate where they can actually engage in teaching in some, in a way that is productive and fun. And also when you have a school that prioritizes relationships, not only between staff members and students, but between staff members and staff members and students and students, 
You have a place where people feel safe to express their ideas. They feel safe to make mistakes. They feel safe to seek out help when they need it, as opposed to other organizations where perhaps they feel like they have to hide their mistakes. We like to say that failure is a part of the process at Crosstown, and that includes students, right? In project-based learning, one of the things we talk about all the time with kids is you're going to do it bad the first time, whatever it is. You know, we've had projects where students design video games through coding classes, and we have projects where students are building robots, and we have students where we have projects where students are learning carpentry skills, okay? You're going to do it bad the first time you do something. Part of getting better is being bad at it. And so we've created a space where I feel comfortable making mistakes and trying new things, and I know I'm not going to get intimidated or I'm not going to get hounded for that. And I think you would ask across the board our teachers, they feel the same way. That in and of itself is such a relief. How do you set the foundation and parameters to where a teacher has the autonomy and the freedom to create engagement, to think creatively, and to do things in the way they think is best for their students without going too far to where the administration or leadership feels that they're crossing the line? What does that look like to you? So obviously, like you have to have you have to have benchmarks, you have to have your own set, your own structure. It's not I I, want to make sure that this is well known. We have all sorts of rubrics and guidelines and planning materials for the work that we do here. We have we have worked for years to build systems that fit our needs. So and at the beginning, I will tell you, it was a little bit of a free for all, mostly because we were trying to figure out what to do. We were learning as we were built. We say we like to say at Crosstown that we were building the plane while we were flying it. But we've built a plane over the last seven years that that truly embodies those principles. And we're now working to like critique and polish those frameworks. So you have to build a framework. You can't just drop a teacher in the room and say, do project based learning, build relationships. You have to give them the tools necessary to do that. And our administration works to build those tools and then facilitate that learning within our, within our teacher base. So what does that look like? You, there are still guidelines, right? You cannot engage with, like you cannot have critical thinking and like freedom of thought and uh, creativity without certain guidelines and discipline in effect that helps facilitate that. And so for us, it looks like this. I mean, every project has a project planning document. When I put a project forth to like to work with my students, I have to go through and plan that project out nine weeks in advance at least. And then I have to go meet with our academic coordinator and I have to talk through it with my fellow teachers and I have to work through it with my uh, department chair before it ever sees the light of day. And so I think the key is that while what we're doing seems novel and sort of nebulous, it's all very structured. It just building those structures takes time. And you have margin to be creative. Exactly. You're not going to, you're not being asked to, first of all, we're not being asked overnight to reinvent the wheel. And secondly, we're, we're saying that if you mess up, if the thing you did for the last nine weeks or 12 weeks or 15 weeks didn't work, awesome. As long as you learn from it. As long as you take that, take the knowledge you gain from it and apply it the next time around. So, you know, teachers don't have to hit the ground running. In fact, we spend lots of time with new teachers, you know, working on working on their skills in project based learning and competency based learning so that they get a, a, an onboarding period. They might do a small project at first and then they build up to something bigger because, again, it's a new muscle. It's a new skill. Like we said, 
there are no books. There are books, but most of your textbooks in college are not going to have project-based learning and competency-based learning in them. This is a not a new not a new thing because it's been around for decades. But in terms of educating large numbers of students, very few schools around the country are doing it. There are more now. In fact, more of them are popping up every day. And there are 30 new schools around the country coming in next year that are using this similar model. We were we and we also work with another 15 schools around the country that are already switching to this model, including DC public schools and the entire state of Rhode Island. Yeah, I saw that there's just under 24,000 public secondary schools and high schools in the USA. And I saw that there's 7,800 charter schools in the USA. So if you take that 7,800, what percentage of schools do you think have any models similar close to what you're talking about with Crosstown? Less than 1%. And are you saying that it's starting to be noticed, starting to create some buzz? Yeah, I think we reached a breaking point. We've been reaching a breaking point. It's been like the public school system is cracking and failing underneath us as a, as a society. I mean, from within the profession, that's what it feels like. And basically, I think you you combine that with the fact that you've got organizations like XQ out there who either noticed that trend or decided to go to to pursue this goal anyway. And it's a recipe for an, a national movement. Now, it it's slow. It's not as fast as perhaps some people would like it to be. But even just XQ, XQ started off with 15 schools. Crosstown was one of those 15 schools around the country in Florida and California and New York and Chicago and Iowa and other places as well. And now it's those schools plus, I think, more cohort schools. Plus, again, they're part, XQ has partnered with the, the District of Columbia to work like with all D.C. public schools uh, to rethink the way that they're doing their curriculum and all of Rhode Island's public schools. Then there are other movements around the country as well that are separate from XQ. Then there are independent schools doing it and sharing what they're learning. So there's a really great one out in San Diego called High Tech High. They've been around for 20 years. And then again, there's a there was a conference in Nashville today, this week, with uh, 30 school leaders who are who are planting seed schools with innovative models centered around things like project-based learning and relationship-based education and competency-driven frameworks. So it's happening. And I think the biggest reason it's happening is that they're, again, schools have fallen behind the needs of, of society. Schools, schools are largely not serving, they're not producing the outcomes we need them to produce in the 21st century. I'm not saying they never worked. They certainly worked for a long time. I think we had one, I think regardless of the problems, for a long time, America was the gold standard of education in the world, you know, during the 1950s and 60s, 70s, and even up into the 80s. But since the 90s, they're just, has been several steps back and not a lot done to fix them. So how many years in are you? Into the school or into like me as a, me as a teacher? Into the school. Uh, this is year six. What's the upside? What's the potential? What's the excitement that you have for what's to come given everything you've gone through? Man, uh, I think that I, I think the sky's the limit. I'm not going to speak too much on like what we would like in, in my wildest dreams, right? I would love to see schools like Crosstown and maybe even more Crosstowns. But, you know, I think the focus right now is to be the best high school in the city of Memphis, and that's independent or public. I'm, I am, I think our goal as an institution is to be the best school in the city of Memphis. And I think we have an argument to say that we're one of the best schools, one of the best public schools in the city of Memphis. And I think depending on the way that you look at it and the way that you like discuss it, we have an argument that we could very well become the best school in general, the best high school. And then, you know, after that, you know, who knows? I think that there's a lot of potential for 
growth and expansion. We're about as big right now, 515, as, we, as we're going to be. But there's potential for us to expand maybe maybe into more parts of the building or other parts of the city with like more students. Um, but right now, like our focus is to take what we started seven years ago. The first goal was to graduate a group of students. The second goal was to do it again so that we can prove that it wasn't just a fluke. <laughs> and now our goal is to say, okay, we've proven our, our method works. Our students got into college. Our students are working already. Our students got lots of scholarships. Our students are you know, performing well and are, by the way, performing incredibly well as Memphians and people outside of the city. Many of them have left, but many of them have stayed and are working here in the city. So our goal is to be that that high school. I, I, I And then, by the way, future goal, 10, 20 years from now, maybe the best school in the country. And I think we have an argument to say that we're one of the best schools in the country. Just from what I see on a daily basis and what I know about education, I think that you there's something really special going on here. So much so that we have every week now, we have visitors and guests come in from all over the country to come and see what we've got going on. Had guests from Kentucky yesterday, guests from New York a few weeks ago. Um, and a lot of these are school leaders, principals and, and superintendents and education reform leaders who are coming to Memphis to see what school can look like. And I think that's something that's beautiful. In a city that is not necessarily known for having the best quality education in the world, but there's a place here that is that is already... Like within seven years, there's a, a place here in Memphis bringing in interested parties from all over the country, which is what Memphis needs, right? Memphis needs, you know, a continued support and effort from people within the city, people who love this place and who, who call this place home. But it also needs collaboration with places all around the country so that it's not alone in that, in that work. Uh, and to show that also that, that innovation happens here, you know? So I think to be the best school in the, in the, in the city of Memphis by any metric that you want to use. And we'll work, you know, some of those are going to be easier than others. And then also additionally to be a place of innovation and a testament to what Memphis can do. What will it take for that to happen? So what it'll take is for us to one on once on our side, continue this work, continue to strengthen the school, build a culture uh, and a pipeline of individuals who see us as a space for innovation. That means parents, but also like community members. It will take more projects that that we can show the results of. It will take us working with more and more community partners. We already work with, a, with an incredible cadre of community partners, but it's going to take us building more connections and relationships with businesses in the city of Memphis so that we can strengthen those ties and show you know, what we're about. And it's going to continue on our end. Our, our side of it is to continue to, to project and bring in, project out and then bring in educational leaders from around the country to say, look what we're doing and look where we're doing it. And here's how you can do it too. And we're already working on that. In fact, they just released, so they made a, XQ made a documentary about our first year. Uh, that actually premiered at Indie Memphis last month. And it's traveling around the country right now to film festivals and uh, to like education, educational summits. Nice. And we're getting great reaction from that, getting lots of, lots of interest based on that. So uh, I think it, that's what it's going to take. It's going to take more good work. You know, Theodore Roosevelt said that far and away, the best thing that life has to offer is the chance to work hard at good work worth doing. And so, so long as we can continue to do that good work, I think we're going to continue to see the results that we want to see. It seems just very clear the way you lay it out. It's entrepreneurship. It's thinking about what people need. Yes. It's not going about it in a conventional way. And it's being thoughtful, being structured, but also being being willing to take some chances and take some risks and do things differently. 
that is entrepreneurship is the perfect example. This whole thing, the whole thing that was started seven, seven years ago was based off of someone going, I can't find something that I need in the marketplace. Right. So that's, that's, that's what business is all about. Right. That's what entrepreneurship is all about. I can't find this thing that I need and want in the marketplace. Or if I can find it, it's not at the price that I want to pay for it. So instead of complaining, I'm going to go out and do it myself. So everything we, we did from the ground up was based off of that. This needs to happen. If no one else is going to do it, let's do, let's us do it. We'll, we'll do it. And then even everything down to our space. So like here at Crosstown, the concourse itself is an incredible space, right? A 1.5 million square foot building that used to be a big factory that got turned into this living, working environment. Our school itself is designed in this big open sort of space setting where we have what we call base camps instead of classrooms so that we can have like students collaborate each other. We have garage doors that are for our walls. And even our space was set up in very much that West Coast tech entrepreneurship style of let's create a space that elicits thought from our students. Let's create a space that elicits creativity from our teachers and from our students. And so, you know, you're exactly right. Entrepreneurship is a great analogy for what we're doing here, creating a space. And then additionally, by the way, I think that's something that we also engender within our students. We have a whole entrepreneurship program for our kids because that's one of those careers we want our students to go out and do. We want them to specifically stay here in Memphis and do it, but we want students to say, I know how to problem solve. I know how to like seek out solutions to things that other people just put their hands up in the air and go, ah, never going to figure it out. And then they go, I can build something that will not only enrich my community, but will also enrich me. And so what we're trying to create are students who, yeah, want to go out and be entrepreneurs and build businesses and create livelihoods for themselves and others. And in so doing, by the way, create a better community for the city of Memphis and then anywhere, anywhere they end up being, right? I can't help but notice that, you know, for those listening to us around the country and also other parts of the world, you know, Sears, it represents the death of industry in certain ways and yeah. in the way it had been done in the past. Crosstown, what, million? 1.2 million square foot. I think it's 1.5 facility. It was the Sears catalog facilities out of Memphis, Tennessee. And it's been revamped, reconstructed to this beautiful place of food, entertainment, medical apartments, so much more. And then here you've got the rebirth of education. And it seems very clear that entrepreneurs, you know, good use of of dollars from a philanthropic standpoint, this is going to drive educational change across the country. And it's going to be the movement behind it because traditional systems are not going to be able to do it. Well, I, th- I think that's, you hit the nail on the head. Obviously, you know, we go back to that, that discussion of why, like one of the reasons that we're seeing teacher shortages is one of the reasons that we're seeing schools failing. Funding is a huge part of that, right? So obviously there's not a lot to be done right now politically about the way that that is structured because that takes a long time, right? Our kids need us now. And so, yeah, Sam, you hit the nail right on the head. Dollars invested in schools that are trying to innovate and change the way that we're instructing kids are doing so not out of a desire for fame and glory. We're doing so because we see a need for children. And, you know, just locally in the city of Memphis, I'll tell you, a dollar invested in Crosstown, a philanthropic dollar given to Crosstown, like I said earlier, we have students from every zip code in the city of Memphis. You give a dollar to Crosstown, and that dollar is going to impact every part of the city. There are very few organizations that can claim that. 
and specifically schools. But across the board, there absolutely needs to be an engagement between business and schools, an engagement between organizations, businesses, high capacity donors, and public schools that are saying, hi, I, like we're, we're going to try to do something different. We're going to try to innovate. We're trying to try to create something from nothing and rethink the way this is done because we know that it can be better. That kind of work pays dividends. It's the way that businesses work, right? It's the way that IPOs and, 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 and small businesses start and grow. Someone says, this can be done better. And I go out and they, they find a you know, person to help fund that. And that person sees you know, dividends from that later on. Well, there's no dividends in a school, but what you can see is in, enriched communities. You can see students who, by the way, could become potential employees for your business, right? I think you talk to any business owner, small or large, from CEOs all the way down to someone who has five employees or zero employee or, or one employee, you'll, they'll tell you that finding good you know, employees is becoming increasingly more difficult. Well, not to say that we as a, here at Cross Center are just trying to create employees. What we are trying to create are young people who have the skills necessary to go out and compete in the job market, whether they have a college degree or not. And that is something that right now is not exist. It does not exist. Most schools are set up right now to push kids to go to college. Most schools' models is centered on how many kids can we get to go to college. And I have two college degrees. I'm not saying college is bad, but shouldn't high schools also be preparing students for the world, whether they go to school or not? And by the way, shouldn't we be taking into account ideas like the student loan crisis and the affordability of college and whether it's economically feasible to push that many students into college where they could be going out and finding opportunities right now. So if you're a business person, if you've been in the private sector your whole life, or if you have a if you're a corporation, it should make sense that you would want to invest in schools that are producing young people who could be your next product manager, your next supervisor, your next CFO. And not to say that that's not coming out of schools that already exist, because they certainly are. But if we're trying to increase where our students, where our employees are coming from, right? We're, like I think a lot of organizations and businesses nationally are saying, we're not just going to be hiring from these specific places anymore. We want to increase the diversity of our, of our staff, right? Well, then you're going to need to go to the places where those students are being educated. And it's the places like Crosstown. And it's the places like, uh, you know, specifically, I can only speak to us, but I know that's happening here. Uh, and I do know that it's happening other places. You just have to dig beneath the surface to find them. Let's say somebody's hearing this and they're impressed. You're speaking to pain points, et cetera. What does collaboration look like? What does interest with you look like in Crosstown? So for us, one of the biggest things is that we, you know, like I said, obviously philanthropic dollars are nice. And, and that's something that like, you know, obvi obviously we appreciate, right? The more funding we have, the more we can do for our kids. But I think the number one thing is, is to simply make a connection to the school. We are constantly looking for community partners for our projects because all of our projects have, a, have something to do with the community. And so if you're an organization that specializes in a certain industry and you want more young people to be interested in that, come talk to our director of, you know, our director of academics and our, and, our, and our executive director, and they'll put you in contact with a teacher working on a project in that field, and you can collaborate on ways to train young people in that skill. If you're an organization that's looking for, you know, a way to give back to your community, it can look like that without ever having to invest philanthropic dollars. It doesn't have to always be, be about money. It can be about time. It can be about expertise. It can be about providing knowledge to students and to teachers that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. So, 
you know, in our case, that's how we usually start a, a, a relationship with an organization or a, a private industry. We say, hey, we've got kids who are interested in this industry. Would you come talk to them about it and work with them on this project they're doing? We also have work-based learning opportunities. That's one of the cool things about Crosstown. We have, have lots of our seniors spend parts of their day off working at dentist office and law offices and, you know, YMC, the YMCA, it, you know, you name it. They're out working in fields because we've determined for them that that's the thing they need to do to enrich their lives the most. And so providing those spaces for kids to really get out and learn in real time, man, that is an indescribable luxury for a school. We do it intentionally. Every school would love to have those kind of relationships. I guarantee it. They just feel like they don't have the time to do it. So we make it a priority. Every school would love that. And on the other end, I mean, speaking in terms of dollars and cents, working with the schools after you've built a relationship to find philanthropic projects that they're working on that help enrich that, that, that school, that's absolutely another way to, to make sure that these places like Crosstown are continuously advancing. And when money becomes involved, there's always certain things that, you know, you know, tracking of that, of those funds, where they go, what they're being used for. So of course, every school is going to be different in that regard. But I know for us, you know, any dollar we take in goes directly towards an initiative that is either to enrich the lives of our students or enrich the like experiences and abilities of our teachers. You know, every day, you know, obviously lots of schools, you know, want to use dollars for like physical spaces. And that's certainly something that we, um, would do too if we ever needed to do that. But I think that that's, that's how that would look. And I think, again, like there's multiple ways to get involved. There's so many different things you can do. And uh, I would encourage both sides, the private and the, and the public school sector to start those dialogues together. Did you say this earlier that the turnover shortage across the country that's just been so you know, well-publicized, that that's not the case across town? No. No, we 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 have, and that's one of the data points I can tell you is we have, of any public school, we probably have the lowest attrition rate of educators across the last seven years of any school. And that's because of leadership and engagement and freedom to teach and do the work that you feel like is best for the student. Is that fair? That's definitely part of it. That's definitely that's definitely a huge part of it. I would say that's at least eighty percent of it. What's the other twenty? Uh, the other twenty is that we are compensated, you know, well. Like we are, we're not saying we're, we're, we're above, we are compensated at like at an average, at the level of Memphis Shelby County schools, but we also have access to other opportunities. So you can take on leadership roles within the school being like a department head. And that comes with, that comes with dollars. Very rarely does Crosstown, Crosstown specifically allocates funds to make sure that teachers aren't taking on roles and, and people aren't taking on responsibilities that are unpaid and feel like a burden. And so that means that we don't, do we don't pay for certain other things like we don't have a bus system right so we don't have buses for the school so like i said we're not a perfect school there's plenty of things that we don't have that other schools do have but what the way that we prioritize our our funds is to make sure that those dollars are going towards students first but that other 20% is there's money for teachers to do professional development and learning one of the things we do here is we have a professional we have a person on staff who is a like a substitute teacher liaison and he either fills in for teachers when they're sick or need to like be home or he has a he has like a group of people that he works with so if i'm sick i text our guy his uh you know number is saved in my phone he is his name is john kovach shout out to john he's an amazing guy and if it's five o'clock in the morning and i wake up the flu john i'm texting john i'm saying i can't come in today john and he's going i got you man and he's figuring that out for me i can't like 
I would take a pay cut to make sure that John stuck around. And I'm not, I'm not lying to you here. Just that little thing of our administration knows that they need to divert funds to take care of teachers too makes the world of difference. Uh, I feel like I'm taken care of. I feel like I'm valued as an employee. I also feel like I don't need to come in sick and get everybody else sick just because no one, like there's no subs to be found. And that's a small thing. There's a billion other, these little things that cause teachers to leave the profession. But man, just having a person on staff whose job that is to coordinate it, man, that makes a huge difference. And that's a part of what makes us different. We're prioritizing teacher mental health. We didn't really talk about it much today, but we're also like, that's another way that schools are going to have to innovate in the next 20, 30, 40 years. We have a teacher shortage. You're going to have to figure out ways of getting teachers back into the classroom. So prioritizing the resources that you make available for teachers is going to have to be something that schools do. Crosstown does it in spades. It's why we won best place to work in the city of Memphis as a high school. Yeah. Well, we could go on another hour. Oh, yeah. This has been awesome. Thank you for doing this. And so grateful we got connected. And it'll be fun to see. But there's a clear theme over and over again. And that's taking what's the most important, starting there, throwing out most everything else, and then building it the right way. What's the best interest for the student, the family, and the teacher? And and thinking differently, but also doing it in a way that focuses on long-term impact as well. And just first principles thinking over and over again. So it's been a blast hearing. I mean, the, the whole problem, the whole challenge, the whole situation is terrible and depressing. And that's not good. And that's not exciting. But to think about somebody that where education is in your blood, like the way it is with you, and then to find something like this that you believe in so much. And then also not to mention just your founder, that's one heck of an entrepreneur that can create the structure, can bootstrap it, can empower people can have their setbacks. I know like we all can, but it's a wonderful story. And I'm grateful that I get to chat with you here. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you, Sam. And, and you, you hit the nail on the head, right? Like, we, like there, you can, if you think too much about it and you look too many of the negative details, it starts to get real depressing. What I will tell you is that there is light out there in the form of schools that are taking on the challenge and the, and the struggles of fixing the system from the point of entrepreneurship, starting something new, creating new new schools and rethinking old schools. There are people doing this work. And I think the more that we share success stories about what it looks like when it works, the more courage you're going to find in the people that, it, that are out there to go ahead and do that work themselves. Not everyone's an entrepreneur. Not everyone is comfortable being the first out the gate. That's why that like it takes it takes a village. There are so many beautiful and amazing and wonderful like schools out there who have have the potential to be doing this work, but perhaps maybe just don't want to risk it until they see that it can work. And you show them success stories like Crosstown and the other schools that are a part of the XQ cohort and and the schools that are that are that are affecting change in DC and Rhode Island. You start showing them that model and then you show them, hey, hey, we've got these systems, we've got these rubrics, we've got these, we've got a playbook for you. It's not that scary anymore. And all of a sudden it becomes a possibility. And so there's a role for everyone to play in this movement. And I think that it's so much, because there will probably be a school that maybe hears about Crosstown and, and takes our model and takes what we do and, and, and does it. And they might do it better than we do it. And you know what we need to do? Go figure, go find those, that school and say, hey, what did you do to improve upon our model? Let's improve based on what you did. And it creates a cycle that keeps going, that affects change. And 
I think we need to get excited about that. The school's like, I think you could excite teachers with that. I think you could bring people back to the profession with things like that. I think you can reinvigorate a student body of millions of kids around the country with the thought of making a school environment that fits them, that fits what they want and what they need. And I think that uh, that is a worthy cause. That is something we should be, that, that I think will we'll get people to the table. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.